Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Because we have moved the, the Lenten cross back into the, the orchestra pit, it takes some craning of the neck, doesn't it? It affects how you, how you see the cross does. It affects your posture, doesn't it? It affects how you orient to everything. And so today, as we orient ourselves to the one staid structure that is steady and reliable and can be trusted, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. Today we continue our study of the patriarchs and matriarchs. We are nearing the end of our study, and I'm grieving a little bit because this has really been fun. In fact, we may just have to keep it up a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. But today we are with Jacob. We've been studying the lives, the, the times, the experiences, the highs and lows, the successes and failures of our early mothers and fathers in the faith. And recently, in recent weeks, we have been with Jacob. Remember trickster Jacob, right? The one who cheated his way to the top of every heap. He is the one who grabbed every heel and supplanted and usurped everyone he could find in order to win at all costs, including costing him the most valuable relationships he had. His own twin brother is done with him. He's burned the bridge. He's lied for the last time. And so several weeks ago, we studied how Jacob now has to flee for his life away from his home where he was raised. And for the last two weeks, we have studied how he made it to the land of Haran. And there in Haran, he found wives and his family grew It grew with wives and children and and livestock and influence and power. And he's living there in the home of his father-in-law, Laban. And Laban has sons of his own. and, And yet, for the last 20 years, by the end of chapter 31, Jacob has been living among Laban's people. But you know... When your family grows, it becomes more complex. When those family complexities grow, it becomes more tense. And tension is the context of our verse this morning. We're going to be all over chapter 31, but for now, we read In chapter 31, verse 1, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. He has gained all this wealth 
from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him favorably as he did before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your ancestors and to your kindred, and I will be with you. You see, when our families grow, so do the complexities of the relationships in those families. You don't have to think very hard to understand what I'm talking about. You know that Christmas is different when one generation has its own generation. And now the cousins are not just this one nice, tight, intimate circle, but there are, there's a matrix of circles, right? And so you can't do Christmas the same way. Whose house is it going to be at this year? Well, it changes as the relationships are more complex. The larger the family grows, the more complex the relationships. And the more complex the relationships, the greater the tension is. Now, I know you would know nothing about tension in families, but work with me here and you'll see what I'm saying because I think that somewhere along the way what Ben Franklin said about guests can be said about family. Fish and family start to smell bad after three days come on you know what I'm talking about you've made that visit home at Thanksgiving and on the first day of the visit I mean everything's fine it's all giggles and smiles and kisses and hugs oh you look so good the kids have grown my how they're growing fast and everybody's just happy to be there the next morning some of that carries over through breakfast but by the afternoon when the football game's on and the mood begins to change the tone and the voice begins to change and that uncle who always brings up politics goes there <laughs> and now the next day the next morning you're asking your spouse can I go run some errands do you need anything from the store yeah. Fish and family start to smell bad after about three days. Jacob had been there for 20 years. Yeah, things were starting to smell. And the tension could be felt around every one of the relationships that he had with Laban, with his brothers-in-law and so forth. But funny thing about tension. Because sometimes with great tension come some surprising results. Think with me for just a moment about a piano. In a piano, a standard piano has about 236 strings inside that box. 236. Now, ours is a Bosendorfer, so it has like about eight more strings because that's just how we roll at JCBC. <laughs> but it's got... 236 or more strings, and those strings all combined create about 40,000 pounds of tension. 40,000 pounds of pressure inside that one box as each string is pulled to a particular level of tautness. You know, it's interesting because sometimes I'll do some studying and writing in this little room that's behind our sanctuary. And I will hear our piano tuner, Howard, come and tune up our piano about once a month. So I'm back there writing or studying or preparing, and, and uh, this, is, this is what I hear.
Isn't that beautiful? And what he's trying to do is adjust each string until each note is at the perfect tone, the perfect pitch. And when he's finished with that one, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's wonderful to study by. It's great. And, and he has as his intention to bring the right tension to every string so that something can be done with it. In fact, Glenn, show us something more than what I just did. Show us what we can do when all the strings have the right level of tension in them. Sometimes, with great tension, beautiful harmony can be made. And if you are in a place this morning where you have been in a season of tension, inwardly or perhaps in the secret lives of your own family systems, Maybe you've come to a place where you don't recognize any redemptive value whatsoever to the tension that's being pulled, the pressure that you're living in. Well, this story is about the kind of beautiful harmony that can come about if the notes are played well. So there was great tension in the life of Jacob, but we really dial into the tension not at the beginning of chapter 31. We dial in at the end of chapter 30. At the end of chapter 30, there's this, this encounter, and Jacob has this, this revelation. The, the words begin here. When Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go into my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go for you know very well the service I have given you. Somewhere deep in Jacob, there had been planted a desire for something to change. Six years before he ends up leaving, about 14 years into his time with Laban, Already he's sensing that it may be time, something's not quite right, and there's this desire growing within him to return to his family of origin. You know, I think that's how faith works. I think that's how it works in the walk of faith because along the way, God will plant within us some kind of desire. We will, along the way, feel this kind of curious emergence of some desire for a thing to happen even long before that thing could ever happen. And it may take years of cultivating the soil. It may take years of watering and planting and, and, and just the right amount of sunlight for that thing to emerge or grow. But God will plant something. I wonder if this is what is meant in Philippians when we hear these words. 
For it is God, it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That word work and will, the word for will there can also be translated desire. It is God who is at work in you, enabling you to desire and to work for his good pleasure. The journey of faith, somewhere along the way, God will plant within you some desire, some unsettled hunger or thirst, and it's down deep, and maybe curious, and maybe from a place that you don't, you don't quite completely understand, but something emerges as a desire in you that is God-like, a desire toward redemption, a desire toward compassion, a desire toward reconciliation in this case. Never underestimate the emergence of a desire that you just can't shake because it might be that God has planted within you something that with just the right soil and sunlight and with just the right water and waiting, everything in your life can change. Jacob was experiencing something in him that would take six more years for him to realize. So he said to Jacob, or Jacob said to Laban, I think it's time for me to go. And Laban prevailed upon him and said, no, don't go. It's too good here. And he convinced him to stick around for another six years. I would use the word manipulate. He manipulated him to stick around for another six years. He said, look, name your price. And Jacob said, I'm not looking for it. No, I don't need to name. Look, I'll tell you what, let's do this. I'm watching your flocks. How about you just give me all the undesirables, all the undesired parts of your flock? In other words, if, if part of your flock has stripes on the sheep, if they're speckled, if they're spotted, if they have blemishes, I'll take those and that'll be enough. Laban says, okay. He doesn't trust him. He knows that he's dealing with a heel grabber, but he is a heel grabber himself, so these are two master negotiators going back and forth. He says, yes, okay. So he divides the flock, and Laban says, very well, you watch over my unblemished flock, and I'm going to take the spotted, the striped, the mottled, the blemished, and my sons will watch them, and every one of the sheep that you look over and, and you you care for, if they give birth to spotted or striped sheep, you can have those. But all those that are pure and undefiled, all those that are unblemished, they remain mine. And so he gives Jacob all these blemish-free sheep. And he separates the two flocks by three days from one another. And then a, a strange story emerges in the text. The end of chapter 30, this very strange story. Jacob is watching over the flock, remember the blemish-free flock, and he, he leads them to this watering hole where he feeds and waters them, but he knows that when sheep go to water, they also mate. So he strips the bark off of certain kinds of wood, off of poplar, off of uh, uh, almond uh, branches. He, he begins to strip them so they look striped. So these rods, he puts up kind of like a fence around the watering hole. And when Laban's strongest sheep come to water, 
He puts those striped rods up, and they mate, and they have striped babies. And then when his weak sheep come up, he removes the striped rods, and they mate, and they have weak babies, but they're blemish-free, resulting in Jacob having all the strongest sheep, though some may be striped and spotted. Well, it's a weird story, because you and I know something about genetics, and we know genetics, well, they don't work that way. And, and most of the scholars believe that there may be a couple of things going on here. One is some ancient superstition, that whatever the sheep are looking at, if there are some visual effects that they're looking at, that somehow that affects your genetics. Well, you and I both know that doesn't work that way. Another theory is that this is perhaps a, a kind of a complex ancient coding system for selective breeding. He brings the strong ones up, he puts the fence up, and there's kind of a tabulating, a kind of calculating, a coding that Jacob uses. And we don't know exactly what's happening in this story. But what we do know is that by the end of the story, Jacob ends up having all the strong sheep and Laban the weak sheep. Something's beginning to smell like bad fish. Because we turn the page to chapter 20 or 31, and at the beginning of chapter 31, that's where the tension begins to, to elevate to a fevered pitch. And we read it a moment ago. Here are the words again. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that, our, that was our father's. He, he has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him as favorably as he did before. Then he returned, or then the Lord said to him, Return to the land of your ancestors and to, the, to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is an interesting verse for me. Because he recognizes that things are changing. It's now moving on 20 years. And he recognizes that the mood is different at dinner time. He recognizes a kind of coldness. And the text is curious to me because the text says that Jacob heard what his brothers-in-law were saying. He heard. And in that same passage we just read, it says that Jacob saw that Laban, his father-in-law, didn't look at him the way he used to look at him. He heard. He saw. <laughs> the text doesn't say it, but I, I'll add, he smelled. When you hear these verbs in these narratives that we've been studying, that I've been preaching for the last 12 weeks, when you hear these verbs, saw, heard, it ought to trigger something deeper in us than just what we physically see and hear. Because we know that these are two great pathways, two great pathways to perception. Pathways to our perception, hearing and seeing. We know this. But in the way of faith, there's always a, a different kind of hearing and a different kind of seeing required. If you want to be a person of faith, all through the, the ancient scriptures we are told that it requires seeing and hearing. Yes, these are pathways to perception, but it requires a different set of eyes and a different set of ears. I mean, didn't our own Lord say it this way in Mark's gospel? We read, do you have eyes and do not see? <laughs> do you have ears and fail to hear? 
But the way of faith requires being able to see something in a different way, to hear something in a different way. And at the very first, God had simply planted a desire in Jacob's heart, a desire for something to change. Years ago, before anything actually changed, it was years ago he began to feel as if maybe it might be time. But now he's beginning, because of the circumstances of his life, He's beginning to see and to hear that it may be time. And it occurs to me that I think that's that's how God does it. There may be some desire in you for a thing to happen, a thing to change, some circumstance to go through some transformation, and you're going year after year after year of waiting. But faith, faith believes in the thing that God has planted within you, but faith prays for the eyes and ears to perceive when it's time. It's as if saying, Lord, I believe this thing that you have put in me, but I, I, can't, I can't see where to go. I don't know what the next move is. Give me the ears to hear like you hear. Give me the eyes to see like you see. And we do this in our individual lives, and we do this in our families when we go through transitions. And I'll, I'll even say that we're doing this in an exciting way in the life of our church. Because we recognize that God has planted in the heart of the body of this this family, our church, this desire to expand our worship possibilities and to become debt-free in three years. We know this. There is a desire living within us, and it's been brewing for some time. But I want you to know how we are thinking when we're looking for our uh, leadership to help us with the service, when we're looking for our next steps. We're praying that God would open our eyes and our ears to perceive who they are. Because somewhere this morning, i got to tell you, just from my heart to yours, i got to tell you, somewhere somebody woke up this morning and brushed their teeth, and shaved, I hope they brushed their teeth, they, they, but they brushed their teeth, they shaved their face, maybe put makeup on, and they don't know that God has prepared them to come and be part of our family here to serve and to lead. See, faith believes in the thing that has been planted but recognizes there's an absolute trust required that God in God's good timing will give us the eyes and the ears to discern where and when the next steps are to be taken. Jacob discerned that it was time There's a great hymn that I think about when I talk this way. A great hymn called, Open My Eyes That I May See. Listen to what it says. Open my eyes that I may see. Glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that will unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee ready Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. Open my ears that I may hear voices of truth thou sendest clear. And while the wave notes fall on my ear, everything else will disappear. Silently now I I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my ears Illumine me, spirit divine. 
when was the last time you prayed something like that? Because most of the time when we discern that there's something God has planted in us, we get so frustrated at not knowing what the next step is that we resign. We shut down. But what if you could do both at the same time? What if you could have confidence in the thing that God is stirring in you, but still not have it all figured out? Driving you to a posture of such humility that your prayer each day is, open my eyes, open my ears, that I may see and hear. So he goes to his wife, Jacob does, and his wives, and says to them, meet me in the fields. We have to talk. He goes out in the fields where there are a lot of sheep around and nobody can hear what they're talking about. And you know what I'm talking about because you've had that Christmas vacation too. You've been to your family and you said to, to your other, meet me in the bathroom. You go in the bathroom, you turn the faucet on so nobody can hear. I can't believe she said that thing. I can't believe he did that. Oh, he went there all right. Yes, he did. One more time, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him off. Water off, smiles back on. <laughs> he goes out into the field, and he says to both of his wives, look, I don't know what's going on here, but I've done everything well. I've lived in integrity. I've done everything your father has asked me. He's cheated me time and time again. Ten times he's adjusted my wages he keeps heel grabbing me, and I, I'm doing everything that I know how to do. And then, interesting, he begins to theologically interpret the sheep mating story to his wives. He says, look, your father said, if they're striped, they're yours. If they're spotted, they're yours. They became striped and spotted. Must be the Lord. And so he says to his wives, we're doing everything we can it's time for us to go. It's time for us to go do us. I love this part of the story. All kinds of hidden family dynamics there. They're out in the field, sheep all around them, and they cut the apple right to the core. Sometimes you have to do that and say, you know what? We love everyone else, but it's sometimes it's, it's time for us to go do us. And so they decide at night they're going to sneak away silently, quietly, secretly. They take off in the middle of the night, but nobody knows that Rachel, right before they head out, she sneaks into the tent of Laban, her father, and when he's, he's out shearing the sheep, she sneaks into his tent and takes his household gods, little icons, little idols, little statuettes that were traditional in ancient Mesopotamia, she goes in and steals the gods, wraps them up, and takes them with her on their escape. Three days pass, and they get three days away from Laban. Laban finds out what's going on. He takes off after them and catches up with them at the seventh day. He's, he's, he's booking it. He's getting there. He has not the same kind of caravan that slows him down, so he catches up with them and he comes up to them and says, are you out of your mind? The fevered pitch, you could read about it. Laban comes up to Jacob in the field and says, have you lost your mind? Leaving in the middle of the night like that, secretly? 
taking my, wife, my, my daughters like they are slaves, spoils of war or something. You didn't even let me kiss my grandbabies goodbye. I mean, when you play the grandparent card, I mean, all bets are off, right? I didn't even get to kiss my grandbabies goodbye. What were you thinking? And Jacob says, I was afraid that you would take your daughters from me by force. And then Laban says, but what about the household gods? Those are important to me. Why'd you take those? And, and Jacob said, oh, no, I, I, didn't take, I didn't take those. Yes, you did. No, uh, I didn't. He didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. And so Jacob said, look, if you can find your household gods among any of our people, well, that person who took them will not live another day. Have at it. And this is where we pick up the text. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel, this is such a great part of the story. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about in the tent, but did not find them. She's sitting on them, right? And she said to her father, uh, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for um, the, the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household goods. <laughs> that is such a great part of the story. It's great on so many multiple levels. Here are these household gods, and he's searching for them. And, and, and by the way, we, we have to say a word or two about the household gods. There are some theories about what those are. They're little statuettes that families had in their home. Some scholars believe they may have just been pagan worship, worship of other gods in ancient Mesopotamia. Some believe that they may have actually been Yahweh worship, some form of Yahweh worship, which included little icons, little statuettes, even into the Davidic period, the time of King David. Could have been that. But either way, what most scholars agree on is that those little household gods were probably also symbolic of property rights, like a deed, like a, like a certificate that is usually handed to the firstborn son of each family. And handing those to the firstborn son basically says, you are now blessed, you are now in charge, you call the shots. But the beauty of this story is that Rachel, a woman, not just a woman, but a second-born woman who, by the way, is married to a second-born heel-grabber. She heel-grabs and steals these gods away from her father. And maybe the most beautiful and provocative part of the whole story is not just that she herself is a heel-grabbing second-born woman like her husband is a second-born child, but the very thing that's reserved for men only is hidden by her womanhood. And that's powerful. So she hides these household gods, but what do they really mean? See, I can't get away from this image of, of, of Rachel, who, by the way, is leaving one life and headed toward another life. She's leaving the land of Haran forever, for good. She'll not return. And it's just, 
It's just too interesting to me that before she goes, before she leaves the house she grew up in, uh, she grabs something that will always remind her of home. And those household gods symbolize not just deity. They symbolize all that was true and right and good and beautiful about their family of origin, all the traditions, all the rituals, all the growing up stories, all the inside jokes. There, she takes them and tucks them away because she's going to a new life. It occurs to me that every one of us have done the same thing. That When we enter adulthood or when we enter marriage, or enter some new season of our life, we reach back and we grab something that we, that we had in the earliest formative years and we hang on to them and don't let go. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. We carry with us into our new season something that anchors us to the old, something that gives us confidence and security and a sense of stability. We hang on to them because I don't know where we're going from here. Somewhere along the way, have to wrestle with the possibility that the old securities, that the old confidences, that the old gods are not enough to lead us into our new life. See, sometimes we can make an idol out of our past. And when we idolize or idealize our past, that we can't fully and freely live into the future that God has for us. When we idealize and idolize our past as if, oh, it was so much better back then, oh, it was so much better at some point. If we idolize and idealize, then we can't live freely enough to move into this unknown future where we will have to depend on a God that is bigger than our household idols. Can I simply ask you the respectful question this morning? Where in your life are you attempting to carry idols from your past into the future that God has for you? Into the thing that God is stirring inside you? Into the thing that the season, the life, the place that God is calling you to? Where are you trying to anchor yourself to the old confidences? Because somewhere along the way, they have to be relinquished. Now, later on in Genesis, in fact, in Genesis 35, Jacob makes all his household deal with this issue. This is what he says. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Because where we're going, we must learn to depend on a God perhaps we've not trusted enough just yet. Now, what does all this mean? It means this, there will be tension, count on it. But out of great tension, beautiful harmony can be made. But in the process of turning tension into harmony, God may plant something in you that takes years to come to fruition. It takes water, it takes light, but don't forget, water comes sometimes through storms and light comes through heat. When it does, there will emerge in you the day when you're able to see and to hear for the first time, yes, God is doing this, and it is time. 
And at that point, you will have to grapple with your propensity to grab all the old gods you used to know. You will have to deal with that, that tendency that we all have to scoop up all the confidences we used to enjoy and carry them with us into this new life. We will come to the place where we have to relinquish and move forward empty-handed and open-hearted. It was 1519 when Cortez landed on the shore of Mexico. He had very few men and few supplies, but within a few years conquered an entire empire. But the source of his success was not in his weapons or in his tactics or in his genius. <laughs> it was in a decision he made on the day they landed on the shore. He ordered all the supplies to come off the ship. And once the last supply had come off, he ordered the ships to be burned. Burn the ships. And every one of the ships that had brought them from their homeland now were rendered absolutely useless. And every one of the men who had come with him had no other alternative but to move empty-handed and open-hearted to a new life. And so do we. Let's pray. Lord, show us this day where it is that you desire for us to burn the ships. Show us what old confidences, what false gods, what tiny securities we have put all of our faith in so we can surrender them and follow you into a life in which you make beautiful harmony out of the tension. In Christ's name we pray.